This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 15, Episode 1, The Chase of Boudin Recall and the Los Angeles Mayor's Race. Talking with Professor David McEwen, Chair of the Political Science Department, Sonoma State University. Hi, David, and welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here the day after. The uh, day after. Well, David, yesterday's California primary had a host of results at the state and local levels, but two races were standouts, namely the historic recall of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin and the first place showing of Rick Caruso in the first round of the Los Angeles mayor's race. What's the significance of both of these races? Well, the significance of both of these races is really, we had a low turnout election, not a lot of sizzle that excited voters with these two exceptions. Both San Francisco and Los Angeles capture so much about California, about California's past and future, but also about the American dream. So in some ways, they are barometers of what is to come but also highly localized races as well. And they still have important implications for the rest of 2022, headed to the midterms this November, but also up and down and across the ballot beyond that. And that's something to pay attention to coming out of these results, certainly with the historic recall of the DA in San Francisco, but also the potential matchup of two huge political heavyweights for different reasons in Los Angeles and guiding that city forward. So it should be a very interesting conversation to understand what happened yesterday and what is likely to move going forward. Well, David, let's jump into the recall of Chase Boudin. The latest results that I saw showed him going down to defeat with 60% of the vote and 40% voting to retain him. It was a very hard fought race. And I heard him speak after the the results were announced and he blamed the his loss on billionaires and the police officers what was your take on the reasons for his demise so there are a number of broader and both localized reasons for that result first you this is only the second recall vote of a district attorney in san francisco history the first was in 1917 against a DA named Charles Fickert. Fickert was uh, an important figure in California politics back at the time. But this particular race, at this particular time, and the Bodine campaign to push back against it has to be placed in the context of where San Francisco is at today and where it has been the last, say, four, five, or even 10 years. The, the issue of livability in San Francisco, safety, security, affordability, what things look like in terms of homelessness, mental health, drugs, the the streets of San Francisco, if you want to figure out that All of those became important elements of this campaign. So if you were a supporter of criminal justice reform and you were one of the progressives that helped Chesa Boudin move forward and to first be elected, you would push back on this recall and argue that this was really a fixture of outside forces or big money interests or Republicans, for example, that were pushing uh, uh, for the recall of a progressive DA. But, but look, there are like three Republicans in San Francisco. <laughs> right. Maybe on a good day. 
And, well, and act, it's not actually, David, on that point, voter registration in San Francisco, 7% of San Francisco voters are registered Republicans. 7%. I mean, that's, <laughs> oh, that's a fabulous, that's a fabulous figure. Basically, less, less than one in 10. Yes. Uh, but, but when you look at, and, and of course, those are Chamber of Commerce Republicans yes. who, who would be considered liberals in any other part of the country. So if you look at what happened in that particular race, and there's going to be a lot right made of this race, that this is the end of the defund movement for uh, Democrats, that's the end of Black Lives Matter, that Democrats can't govern the cities. I mean, Republicans are going to make political hay of this all the way through the midterms. But that really ignores the difficult lessons of San Francisco over that argument of livability, safety, and security. The visuals of retail robberies. At the holiday season in Union Square, the rampant use of burglaries and, and auto uh, burglaries and break-ins and residential break-ins, all of those things combined with hate crimes against Asian Americans, mm -hmm. these things came to symbolize a city that was out of control. And as a result of being out of control, if you felt that things were going poorly in your lives because of COVID, because of economic conditions, the disparities around wealth and income that we see in the city, all of these things became part of this fight and battle in the San Francisco DA's race. It became a magnet for negativity and protest politics, much bigger, if you will, than just uh, Chesa Boudin and the DA's race, but by the same time, localized. So, so finding lessons from that that could be spun out to other DA races, they're, they're there but limited, could be spun out to based on the, on the heels of a recall of throwing off school board members earlier this year. Mm -hmm. All of that as a recall as a protest device is important, but also San Francisco's peculiar and particular history. It's, it's notions of diversity and respect for a bohemian lifestyle. All of that got turned on its head. And the Bodine campaign was unable to adapt to that. And, and what I mean by that is if you think back to the last, say, four to eight weeks of the campaign, it seemed that their campaign had discovered Asian-American hate crimes and tried to do something about it, mm -hmm. discovered residential burglaries and uh, auto robberies and retail thefts, they, they seem to respond too late to the dynamic that had already changed. And I think you saw this yesterday in his speech, which was firing and demonstrated that he really is a true believer about these progressive ideals, and he's not a politician. And the inability to adapt, to understand these changing conditions that were going on and perceptions about San Francisco cost him this seat. Also, if you go back and look at his election under the ranked choice voting system, he had a wide distribution of support amongst progressives, but not a deep mm -hmm. set of uh, base vote there. So wide, but not deep. And that width, but lack of depth, limited the upward potential of his of his vote. And we see this result of 60-40, which to those of us watching this and looking at this for some time, we predicted that he'd lose by 15 to 20 points. It'd be at 15 points. If it was a more voter turnout, well, it was, and it was still a 20 point blowout. So in that sense, it's a real sanction and message. I think moving forward, if you're George Cascone in Los Angeles, you're paying attention to this, but the threat and use of the recall as a device is an important development out of this, where we know 
that about 75% of local recalls are successful. They're usually tied to scandal or some type of malfeasance of the individual. Mm -hmm. That's not the case here. But the visuals and the graphics and the storylines, the narratives that were built against this particular individual as a sanction on what is wrong with San Francisco is a huge, huge message out of this. It also has implications for the mayor moving forward as well. Let's just come back to, let's just focus on that, the issue of the recall, because the Board of Supervisors here in San Francisco had put Measure C, Proposition C on the ballot, which effectively would have trimmed and curtailed the power of the voter to call a recall. I mean, talk about having a tin air and, (laughs) you know, a a politician's arrogantly in a one-party state basically trying to trim the the few remaining tools that voters have to keep politicians accountable. They put this measure on the ballot. It was Measure C. It would have trimmed our right to recall in local elections. And that also went to it down to a resounding defeat of 61% to 39 So recall is here to stay. And those supervisors in San Francisco who voted to put on the ballot, they've got to be... they better be pretty circumspect because I think voters are not going to forget that. I I think you're spot on there. There's a couple of things that we see as responses to recalls in a device. And we see this often by legislators, members of the County Board of Supervisors, city legislators in in a state house that move against what we call the initiative recall and referendum process. We certainly saw that we were going to reform the recall process after Gavin Newsom last year. All of those things go sideways. And even in a progressive city that likes to think of itself as as highly advanced about and astute about politics, you see Proposition D go down in flames. But we see this all over the country at local levels. So you've got about 26 states that have some form of direct democracy and a recall device. But you look at localities and what happens in local governments, and there are thousands of local governments that have the recall device. And voters expect to be asked and to participate, and they want to vote no. One of the issues here is that when you go to reform direct democracy, the recall process, the referendum process, or that process which develops ballot measures and initiatives, voters likely support the current situation, as frustrated as they are by it, as frustrated by the spending and the negativity and the campaigns around them, as much as that angers them, they don't want to change the process. They're much more likely to change the death penalty in the state than they are to alter the recall process. So what we see in San Francisco in terms of both the results of Chesa Bodine and the DA's race and an attempt to change the rules of the game, Proposition C, it's not unusual in recent history, the last 20 or 30 years, where voters have pushed back against that despite their frustrations and uh, difficulty, uh, their frustrations with City Hall or with particular politicians. They don't want to change the rules of the game because they understand the rules of the game as frustrated as that may be. Let's come back to one of the key issues in the recall campaign, and that's fentanyl. We had 500 fentanyl-related deaths on the streets, particularly among our homeless population, drug-using population here in San Francisco. Yet, Chase Boudin wasn't able to get one fentanyl drug dealer convicted on fentanyl charges. Now, at the same time, I have it on pretty good authority that San Francisco police officers who were nabbing some of these fentanyl dealers, instead of turning them over to the district attorney because they felt 
that they would just be released, they actually took them to the U.S. Attorney's Office here in San Francisco. It, is there is there precedent for this, David, where you have a local police office, a local police force, which basically is bypassing the local district attorney's office and going direct to the feds, to the U.S. Attorney's Office? Yes, there is, and it's quite noteworthy at some level. And we have seen this, for example, in New York City. Uh, uh, before Rudy Giuliani came on, and we've seen it in other cities across the United States. That is, if you're a a district attorney, even if you're a reformer, a criminal justice reformer like Chesa Boudin, you have to expect that the law enforcement community will be richly engaged in your activities. And usually there is this tense or difficult relationship. We see this in, in cities that where there's a tight relationship between the DAs that have the discretion to charge and under what conditions or to revisit cases based on certain parameters and conditions and the law enforcement community. Uh, we, we have long uh, instances of this between LAPD and the LA district attorney. And we've had instances of this in cities like Chicago, Dallas, Philadelphia, and most notably New York City, where the police department has gone around the DA. We've seen it in Miami on drug cases and in Manhattan related to cases on organized crime. So there are a number of components here that are important about how the law enforcement community reacts to a DA. And so what you really would want to see to make criminal justice reform work is you need a partner on that side. You don't often get that. And in some ways, Chesa Boudin, as a true believer progressive, is ahead, far ahead of the police department. And as a result of being far ahead of the police, he is, uh, if you will, uh, in an uneasy, unequal relationship there. That obviously spills over the politics But he and his team seem to have pushed that aside, and obviously that's going to further upset the rank and file and and become difficult. Also, the mayor, if you look at Mayor Breed and what she's done, she is in real time trying to find a place where Democrats can navigate this issue of reform and defund versus, if you will, what to do on uh, addressing the law enforcement issues and the law enforcement community and police She's increased the budget and her latest proposal to deal with the overtime issue and to put more cops on the street. She is out of this recall, becoming front and center, the, uh, the really the, the, the picture of leading law enforcement and the DA's office. This now she owns moving forward, and that'll be an interesting thing to watch because, again, she's trying to find a place in real time for where Democrats can find their position, and Republicans want to take advantage of that and head it to the midterms. Now, David, if... Mayor Breed, we're listening to this podcast. And of course, we both know she will be appointing the replacement, the successor to Chase Boudin in approximately 10 some days after the Board of Supervisors certifies the results of the election. She will then announce her appointment. And that new district attorney will, of course, have to run in November. So the, the appointment will be sometime in June once the Board of Supervisors certifies the result. And almost immediately, that district attorney is going to be running for their re-election in their own right come November. If Mayor Breed were listening today, what would be your thoughts and counsel to her in choosing a district attorney as a result of this historic vote by the people of San Francisco? What would you tell her if she happened to be listening in today? 
Right. Well, uh, Mayor Breed, uh, there are a couple of elements here. One is you and your staff have done a, a much better job at floating ideas and testing the waters about how to engage on issues of homelessness, mental health, uh, the fentanyl epidemic, law enforcement, all of the issues that came to the front and center of the DA's race. Now, save a few minor politicians in San Francisco. She's the only Democratic politician who didn't endorse or uh, try to save Chesa Boudin. Mm-hmm. She, she played a role that was, uh, if you will, much uh, slower about going into that fair wind and endorsing him. And as a result, she has had an opportunity now to remake the DA's office. However, the progressives are not going to go away. They're going to seethe about this result. And your next appointment should be someone who is obviously tougher on crime, can engage the police department, but has to show results almost instantly. That is a really tall order. Because if you also kind of pan back and think about the history of the San Francisco mayor, the, the mayor of San Francisco has played a much more prominent role in democratic politics statewide California politics than the mayor, ironically, of Los Angeles, a city that's 10 times the size of San Francisco in terms of square area. So so she has some things to really look at in a hard way, and she has only a short time to do it. And in real time, she's trying to find that place, a position that's ideal for Democrats in an election year and a midterm year where she's also looking forward and looking up. And it's a crowded field above her. So it's a really difficult task ahead while you in the near term have to appoint and take ownership of the DA's office through this replacement appointment. Well, David, since we're talking about mayors, let's move 400 miles south to the city of Los Angeles. And to their vote yesterday, it was a first round vote where we had a Republican developer, Rick Caruso, running against veteran African-American Congresswoman Karen Bass. And then with Kevin DeLeon, who is a member of the city, the uh, the council in Los Angeles, also running, the three of them competed. And surprisingly, a Republican developer, Rick Caruso, came in first. What do you make of that result? Well, Rick Caruso uh, is, is an interesting cat. And, and here's why. He spent $40 million to come in first place, re-registers, away from being a Republican. He's someone who also is looking at this race and looking at Los Angeles with a uh, strong on crime or against crime, a strong law enforcement kind of credential. In some ways, uh, the very antithesis of, of what we saw when Chesa Bodine comes in as DA. He's someone that I, quite frankly, think will be the next mayor of L.A. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's going to do well. And one reason he's going to do well is because he's going to spend Bloomberg-like money mm-hmm. to win that race. He's going to spend another 40 to $60 million. He's going to spend as much as 80 to $100 million to become the next mayor of L.A. Michael Bloomberg spent a little over $100 million to become the mayor of New York City. As a result of that, he'll take that city in a direction that is different than what we see in Northern California and in some ways counter to what we see throughout Blue California. And if you kind of look forward at this, that sends a strong message to someone like Karen Bass and to state Democrats. Because, look, Karen Bass has done everything right in Mm -hmm. terms of moving up from the minor leagues and the farm team to now move to a place to, to lead America's second largest city. It's going to be really tough for her and really tough for her supporters to hold on and to, to, even with increased turnout in November, to be successful. 
In addition, if you're Rick Caruso, and you can take that Snoop Dogg uh, endorsement and you can win the November mayor's race in L.A., you could re-register. And all of a sudden, Republicans have a statewide zillionaire who mm. becomes relevant to run for statewide office, where in history tells us that uh, the L.A. mayor's office is usually a dead end for your political career. Nonetheless, he'll be in the conversation. He'll have the personal wealth, but he'll need, like Gavin Newsom, a policy success. That's going to be hugely difficult because the city of Los Angeles has more than 60,000 homeless people. The county of Los Angeles, including the city, has more than 120,000 homeless individuals. Mm. That's an incredible number, a a national public policy failure. And how do you write the police department? How do you deal with a, a difficult sheriff's office? and deal with that homeless situation in a city that's 500 square miles. It's tremendously difficult to do that and going to be tremendously difficult to be successful. But he'll have the money and resources to do it, and he'll also be in a broader conversation about California's future is if he has even the slightest element of success. And Democrats will be back on their heels and wondering what to do next. You have a similar situation with the battle for the mayor of San Jose. And so what comes next for traditional Democrats, for submerging Democrats, or the changes that are going on with the state are going to give a lot of folks who've been out of favor politically an opportunity to kind of sit back and assess what their chances are moving forward, especially headed to 2024 and beyond. Let's just come back to the L.A. race for a second. You had former mayor... Antonio Villaraigosa endorsed Karen Bass, yet she came in second with 42% of the vote. So he was somewhat lackluster in being able to persuade the Latino vote to move to Karen Bass, it would appear. And then you have this interesting result of Kevin DeLeon, the council member who's garnered his own 7% support very heavily backed by the Hispanic community, the Mexican-American community in Los Angeles. And of course, you add his seven to Caruso's 47, and you're a winner. Versus you add his seven to Karen Bass's 42, and you still come up short. What do you think the role of the Hispanic community and the Hispanic vote in this election is going to be, and could they be the pivotal, the pivotal role, the pivotal vote to put Caruso over the top? Yeah, I think uh, you, you've really put your, your your finger right on the, the pulse of what's happening. Look, look, demographic: who has children in school in across the country, in California, and in particularly Los Angeles and its environs? You see that younger children and younger couples of Latinx, Hispanic origin, have children who are coming of voting age. Mm-hmm. They are you know, 14 to 18. We know that voting is a habit. And their policy preferences or the policy preferences of their parents are different from what we might think of as regular habitual voters. Also, there are other elements here to, to what's going on. So, so what we see here in, in Los Angeles going on is that changing demographics is because those children are coming of voting age, the voting preferences are different. And in addition to this, we also see, that, see a change in the traditional ability to draw out the vote from Democratic politicians like KDL 
Kevin DeLeon, who seems to have not recovered, if you will, from running against Diane Feinstein mm-hmm. uh, just uh, in, a few short years ago and running to her left. And, and someone like Antonio Villaraigosa has had a mixed level of experience Ever since he left the legislature by taking on, for example, traditional labor like United Teachers of L.A. And so the Democratic coalition of L.A. and its alignment with the Hispanic vote has fractured. Mm. If Rick Caruso can grab that vote, overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. therefore, if you will, uh, somewhat more pro-life, usually more Mm pro-life, pro-choice, overwhelmingly oriented to family, small government, suspicious of what the government does. If Republicans or light Republicans can capture that and get over the legacy of 187 and 209 on issues of immigration, on issues of policing, there's a real opportunity there. And and if you will, uh, some type of mark that can be made to address and grab the Latinx vote, because that's the emerging population, not just in L.A. and across California, but across the country, especially in states like Georgia, a huge battleground for 2024. Now, these two results, the Chase Boudin result and the L.A. mayor's result, of course, that's for California, and the both of those issues are going to be decided come November. Uh, ultimately, finally decided, but the first wave is certainly very much a, a California earthquake, in, at least politically. But let's come back to the possible national impact of these two standout results come November and the midterms. What, if any, impact do you think that these two results are going to have nationally? I think that the results we see in San Francisco are highly localized to San Francisco and yes. the nuances and difficulties of that city and, and what's happened there in the last, say, four, five, ten years. Los Angeles is much more difficult. It's a place where, if you will, governing that city and a massive scale of the problems are not city-dealt or city-born or city-centered. They're national in scope. Mm-hmm. So the difficulty to address these things is huge. And even though San Francisco is much smaller in geographic size and population, it's also uh, much more uh, national in scope in terms of dozens of departments that are there, the size of the budget. And so there's a lot of political hay that's going to be made about the messaging coming out of here. Like, for example, that Democrats don't have an answer on crime, that Democrats want to talk about guns and the Dobbs memo abortion headed into November to mobilize their vote. But their voters are not the voters that they think. And so we're going to see this play uh, all over the place. But, but here's the interesting thing, uh, both about San Francisco, L.A., California. In 2018, California delivers the House and Democrats and Nancy Pelosi back into the speakership mm-hmm. as, a, as a reversion against Trumpism and against Trump for two demographics, uh, suburban women who are upset about what was going on with Donald Trump and a number of young people who are upset about Parkland, the shootings going on there. So guns and gun violence is going to be a huge influence for Democrats and their messaging. Do you want to resolve that this summer? when voters are making and cementing their decisions, or do you want to use that as an election issue headed into November? And Democrats clearly want to use that along with the issue of abortion and the Dobbs memo for what can happen for the Supreme Court here in very short order to motivate their voters into November. There, there's a one thing that is clear from the primary and from what we saw across the country and have seen so far is that Democrats seem to have a motivational problem. 
there seems to be this lag or lack of motivation or more enthusiasm on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you see this sometimes in midterm elections, but that allows Republicans an opportunity to talk about or to cast in a negative light that Democrats don't have an answer on crime and on other cultural and social issues while gas is at $7 a gallon or the highest in, in the country here in the Bay Area. That is going to make a very difficult argument around pocketbook issues, around issues of culture and and society and equality and how to handle the issues of crime and guns moving forward. That will be some of those will be some of the key barometers for the Republicans challenging Democrats. Democrats have to come up with an answer. And right now there's a huge generational shift and a huge generational change going on. We even see that in Sacramento for what's going on there as well. Well, David, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, can you bring this all together for our listeners? Because you've done some great analysis here, both on the recall of the district attorney and then the possible emergence of Rick Caruso as as mayor come November in Los Angeles. Can you summarize the whole thing for our listeners? Yes. Uh, first, let me say thank you for being here. I, I listen to the podcast all the time. You just have fantastic guests. I don't say that because I'm on here. It's just the, the storylines <laughs> are just so interesting. So I, I really appreciate thank you. Thank you, listen. David. I appreciate I, it. I, I really do. It's, it's just a fantastic podcast. Uh, if you look at what happened in San Francisco, what happened in Los Angeles, and then kind of uh, start to peel away the onion here a little bit, it's very important that we look at what is happening below the surface in the politics of this state. And these two cities, there was massive amounts of spending by inside groups, groups you might think of as uh, those groups that know how politics work and by outside groups, groups that nominally want to change or move uh, so that one person runs against a, a, a set person and that gets a better lineup. When we saw spending, for example, to, to position certain candidates so that our candidate would be better positioned against that person in November. There's just a massive amount of spending going on below the surface. So again, it's just like iceberg analogy. What you see in results and you see happening on the surface is nothing that's going on underneath. What that means is there's going to be massive amounts of campaign spending between now and November. Democrats have an opportunity to change the narrative, to try to motivate their voters, but voters see especially preoccupied with their pocketbook and midterm elections. So that's going to be a tough sell for them. Republicans have enthusiasm, but they don't necessarily have with many of their candidates in the House or down ballot or across the country. They don't necessarily have the right candidates to take advantage of the change motivation. Obviously, in the scenes for this is going to be Donald Trump. You have the January 6th hearing starting in Washington, D.C., Uh, tomorrow on Thursday, all of this is going to churn up our politics. And there's another component to this. Your listeners can't forget that almost one in two California voters is a registered Democrat, about 47%. So this is a blue state, Mm -hmm. but there are some interesting developments headed into November where someone like Monty Chen, who did very well in the controller's race, Mm -hmm. has an opportunity to win that place. And a Republican has not been elected state California since 2006. That was Steve Poisner when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Mm -hmm. But in the controller's race, every controller in the state of California since 1975 has been a Democrat. So you've got these this dollars that are spending under the surface. You've got this Democratic, not just ownership, but growth of the voters. And and these 
Democrats are a little bit different across the state. Uh, they're not the same, if you will. They're not all San Francisco progressives, for example, or, uh, you know, uh, they're a lot of them are Valley Democrats, farmers who eat coastal Republicans from Santa Cruz for lunch. Uh, they're very different <laughs> in their politics. And you also have, in addition to this, more than half the legislature that's going to retire at the end of 2024 by 2025. So there's going to be a lot more dem on dem violence. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of change going on, not just with the population, but the population of office holders, as for example, people like Senator Feinstein or Speaker Pelosi move along in their careers as well. So in some ways, peeling back the onion here, looking behind the surface, there's a lot that comes out of this particular primary, even though the voters may have missed some of it because they didn't participate. Well, David, I want to thank you very much for your insights and especially for that superb wrap-up of a very complex set of results out of yesterday's primary. Once again, David, thank you very much, and we look forward to having you back again real soon. Well, thank you very much. I I always enjoy being here. Your your questions are always just so thought-provoking. And again, just a real fan of the podcast. Thank you very much. Again, thank you very much, David. And for my listeners, as we celebrate our second anniversary, thanks for your support. With 285 published episodes, the San Francisco Experience is carried on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.